If you've ever booked tickets for an event online, you'll know the pain of getting to that final screen only to find you've been slugged with a booking fee. It's a charge that everybody seems to resent, but for Adam McCurdy and his business partner, it was an opportunity. They recognised that the millions of dollars of profit that are skimmed off the top by the ticketing industry was ripe for a little impact disruption. The result was Humanitix. It's a charity that looks a lot like a business, and it's both. And that's what we like here at the Good Future Podcast. My name is John Tretgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Adam McCurdy has had a wild ride over the past two years as he and his co-founder followed the startup model to bootstrap Humanitics into the thriving social enterprise that it is today. They've won million dollar awards from Google and they've wooed big donors like the Atlassian Foundation. But as you listen to Adam and hear him explain their concept and their journey, it'll all become clear why. These guys are very good operators. They have lofty social impact goals. And while they're using the power of technology, the real innovation is in their business model and the way they're taking on big established organizations head on to deliver a quality product while also supporting vital charities and their projects. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. I pressed Adam for some more details about the 90-second pitch they crafted to win themselves the Google Impact Challenge, and he offered some really practical tips that I've included after the credits, so stay tuned for that. I'm keen to dive in. Don't forget to check out the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. You can shoot me an email with any feedback or leave me a comment on the Good Future Instagram page. All right, here we go. You founded Humanitics. It's set up as a charity, but it's actually a business that takes away the pain of, of getting hit by booking fees when we buy tickets online. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Humanitics was started three years ago by myself and my best friend, Joshua Ross. We were looking at a whole range of ideas in the social enterprise space and sector and found it a really, I guess, interesting a concept of you know creating charitable models and not-for-profit models that are sustainable and and with leverage, and we started to explore ideas that incorporated technology as kind of their key driver. Given that technology has just been the driver of the greatest increases in wealth we've seen over the last few decades, and we thought, how can we come up with an idea that is a social enterprise that embraces that rise in technology, and so we looked at a whole range of ideas. And the one industry that stood out to us as ripe for disruption in this regard was the events ticketing industry. And so that's an industry that generates billions and billions of dollars in booking fees that everybody hates. So that's that, you know, $10, $20 booking fee you get hit with when you buy a ticket to, you know, a show or a festival or a conference or, or a workshop. And those fees add up to billions of dollars and everybody hates them. And so we thought, what if we could create the first not-for-profit organization whose 
goal is to redirect 100% of the profits from this industry towards educating the most disadvantaged students here in Australia and around the world, and with an ultimate ambition of alleviating global inequality. And that's what we did. And so we set up Humanitics, and it's grown incredibly quickly, and we're incredibly excited by it. Yeah, it's a really interesting perspective, the way you came at it, rather than setting up a charity and and having a particular challenge, you sort of wanted to come up with a model and an enterprise and a business, which I think is unique, you know, driven by sustainability and technology, as you said. Now, you are set up as a charity, but you started out as a for-profit business. Can you give us a bit of an insight, you know, maybe people that are um, working in a social enterprise that aren't quite sure about which structure to go for, can you give us a bit of an insight about about your, your thinking there? Our intention was always to run this as a not-for-profit, actually a registered charity. The reason we took that view was because given that our impact model is all about redistributing the profits of the industry, we thought that by incorporating a, you know, equity shareholders in the business, that muddies the waters and dilutes the impact that we can create. And that if we kept it as a not-for-profit, then we can cover our costs as an organization but then genuinely redistribute 100% of our profits and just be very clear in our intention and and our ability to create impact. The reason we started off as a for-profit entity was we were lucky to get a meeting with David Gonski, actually at, at the beginning of our journey. Told him about what we were doing and what our ambitions were with this organization and knew that he had good insight on the, on the charity sector. He said to us, that's a fantastic idea. I hope it works. But don't spend the next three, four, six months setting up a charity and going through setting up a constitution and everything that you have to go through setting up a charity. Rather, just set up a quick PTYLTD organization, get going to pilot the idea and the concept, and just donate your profits anyway as a for-profit entity. But that way, you don't have to tie yourself down in the initial stages when you're trying to test and prove a concept. And that proved to be really, really good advice. And so we started off as a for-profit for that exact reason, just so that we wouldn't be distracted from testing the idea and seeing if organizers would switch to a ticketing platform that redistributed its profits to alleviating global inequality. And then once we had proved that concept and that idea and then wanted to start to formalize everything, that's when we then formally transitioned into a charity structure. Okay, so it's really a, a testing decision that setting up a charity is so much more onerous than setting up a, a company. Is that really what it comes down to? Yeah, exactly. Some people might be intimidated by the idea of setting up a company, but really, yeah, it is just a, a few forms when um, you've been dealing with setting up a charity yourself and, and you've been through it all in the last year or so, but you're doing very well. <laughs> One thing could have jumped out at me that really you're a charity that gives to charities. Yeah, so we see the the charities that we distribute our money to as our implementation partners. And we work very, very closely with them to ensure, A, that we're all aligned in our ambitions to achieve achieve impact in the world and that the money is being used resourcefully and in the right way. And so we think it's quite a unique fit that here we are going off and essentially mining a fortune of resented profits and then redistributing them into our implementation partners, which are our partner charities, to carry out and implement the work. And so we find that to be quite an efficient model and quite a collaborative one. Mining resented profits. That's quite a business. That's great. You don't come from the charity sector. You, you know, also 
don't sort of come from the social enterprise side, um, nor do you have a background in ticketing. Do you think that's a benefit or has it sort of been a steep learning curve? Maybe that's the, the beauty of disruption and, and how it really works. Yeah, I mean, I was a management consultant with Accenture prior to this. I worked on a, a whole bunch of projects of all different shapes and sizes and different clients. You know, I, I come from an engineering and mathematics background from university. Josh, my co-founder, comes from a finance background and was a, was a fund manager here in Sydney. So yeah, we, we don't have a, a background in specifically social enterprise or the not-for-profit sector or ticketing. But I guess what we are passionate about and did recognize is a fantastic opportunity. And then, you know, like most of these things, it's just a matter of grit to follow through on an idea. That's what we did. I think our greatest strength is our partnership, the strength of the way we work together. So when, when we first came up with this idea, you know, like every idea, it's a nice idea. And so we were very excited to be working on it in our spare time, you know, after work and on the weekends. But then we realized that this is a cool idea, but it's not going to go anywhere unless we focus on it full time. So that's when we realized we had to leave our jobs to do that. But at the time, we were self-funding it. We didn't have any funding partners. And our intention was for it to be a charity. So it wasn't like we were going to go raise money with VCs because there's no equity to offer. And so we came up with a plan. And the plan was that one of us would leave our jobs to focus full-time on making creating Humanitics, while the other one would stay in their job so that we could share a salary and donate the funds that we needed to get the idea going. And so with my engineering background, we decided that I'd leave my job to focus on Humanitics full-time to really give this idea a crack. And Josh would stay at his job. And we did that for 16 months, sharing a salary and Josh working outside of hours after work and on the weekend and me focused full-time on it. And that's just how we kind of teamed up to get it going. And then after 16 months, we were getting a lot of traction, still hadn't raised any money, still self-funding it, but I couldn't handle it on my own. So Josh left his job to join me full-time. And that's when we both were volunteering completely on the hook. And then a few months after that, that's when the first few philanthropists recognized what we were doing and the exciting opportunity that and the impact that we were creating and joined us to, to begin formally funding Humanitics. Wow, there's so much there. That that's really is quite an incredible partnership. For that first 12 months, did you really question whether or not you'd get there if you were making the right decisions? Was it a, a difficult time in that way or do we just head down and you're like, no, we're going to do it? A combination of both. I think it depended. It depends on the morning <laughs> that we woke up on. Yeah, I mean, we were just incredibly excited. Like every idea at the beginning, it's very slow going. So it just takes a lot of persistence. You know, we got a lot of interest from, from you know, quite a few event organizers. At the beginning, they were, you know, just quite small, basic event organizers running events for, you know, maybe 20 or 50 people. And we, you know, put together a, a very basic piece of technology that could handle their ticketing requirements. And, you know, just started doing that and just slowly starting to build our model and recognizing what our organizers wanted, what makes their life easy. That's kind of been what we've been focused on from day one. So interestingly enough, we really view ourselves as a technology organization first, because we recognized at that stage very early on that if we don't offer compelling software, compelling technology for our organizers to sell tickets well, to manage their registrations, their customer data, their everything. This idea will just remain a cute idea that donates money to charitable projects and would never really be a serious game changer. 
so we recognized early on, we have to focus on our technology and the service we provide the event organizer and the value that we can provide them running their own business. And then on top of that, be the most ethical ticketing company in the market who redistributes all their profits to alleviating global inequality. And I think that served us really well, that mindset. Yeah, it's really the bootstrapping startup model, but without the shiny sort of um, equity exit that so many people are driven by. People really do resent booking fees and you've found a fix there, but they also really resent glitches in an app, especially when they're Mm. trying to buy tickets to their favorite concert or whatever they're going to, you know, they wouldn't want to miss out. Did you have some shaky moments there, some challenges with the tech? We did. And we actually turned down a lot of clients at the beginning, which is very difficult when you know you're you're really desperately trying to get this thing going and then all of a sudden we got a very big more sophisticated event organizer who loved our concept and wants to use us and our and our product to ticket for their next event we looked at that and and we said you know made some very tough decisions to say you know what we're not there yet for you let us come back to you next year because next year we'll be ready for you to, to handle your requirements and, and that kind of sophisticated service that you need and, and the kind of volumes that you're expecting. But we just realized that you know when you're the ticketing platform for an event, you become the single lane highway for funds to their organization for that event. That road cannot break, that it cannot go down. And so there's zero margin for error. And so we were very, very cautious to not burn any relationships or, or lose the one chance we had at getting a good reputation in the market. So, I mean, luckily we, we've avoided, I mean, like, you know, like every tech platform, you know, there's little glitches and little bugs here and there that you quickly fix and you jump on and you, and you make sure that everything's smooth. But um, yeah, thankfully we've, we've avoided, you know, a massive blow up or a ticketing for a few thousand people event and, and you know everything crashes and everything comes burning down and I think it was just because we were very cautious recognizing that it's a big responsibility to be the ticketing platform for an event yeah it can't be taken for granted but yeah very mature long-term thinking of you guys there uh, I think I just... that was actually facilitated by the fact that we didn't have shareholders breathing down our neck mm. To see the numbers, you know, it was just us, you know, and our reputations and our funding of our own funding this organization. And perhaps that that helped that we weren't under so much pressure to appease our shareholders because we didn't have any. I'd like to double back just a little bit and, and dig into sort of the impact side. You talked about the charities that you've chosen as being your implementation partners. There's a big decision there of who to choose, who to trust, and what their actual outcomes and outputs are. So how do you choose your charity partners? We've gone through a bit of a transition here. So we began focusing more broadly on solving the issue around inequality, suffering and and poverty here in Australia and around the world. We would look at focusing on frontline charities that are doing work to essentially alleviate disadvantage. So that would be women's community shelters, crisis accommodation for women escaping domestic violence, which we teamed up with women's community shelters for, who who are phenomenal. Then groups like Oz Harvest providing meals for a range of different causes related to disadvantage and mental health charities doing phenomenal work. And so that became our first, I guess, group that we began working with, which was really powerful. And it was kind of a common sense approach that we adopted at the beginning. We're not a massive foundation that has the ability to do tireless due diligence on every single charity, but it, but it was very much a common sense approach of charities that had kind of gone through the mill with other foundations. We'd get advice from other foundations that we were talking with about 
you know, which charities they found to be the most effective. And so, you know, leaned on a lot of our relationships and partnerships to get some guidance there just to save time. As we continued to grow, we recognized the value of being able to measure our impact and be much more focused in the impact that we want to create. And that's where we're now transitioning to a model that focuses exclusively on education outcomes. That is now kind of how we're more refining the charity partners that we're teaming up with to focus exclusively on education. I guess the main driver behind that is just broadly, we see education as a very sustainable way to enact impact in inequality, and it allows us to better measure our impact. And so we've worked with the Center for Social Impact and the Atlassian Foundation very closely to kind of work out our, our impact model and, and something that's, that's much more refined. So just to be clear, does that mean that the only charities you're going to be focusing on are those that try to deal and promote education? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Going forward, we'll be focusing on Indigenous scholarships here in Australia. And that will be run through Yallery. We'll also be teaming up with OzHarvest to focus on a project for school children that are going to school not having had breakfast or not having had lunch. Because if you haven't had breakfast and you don't have lunch, it's almost impossible to learn. And that's a big problem here in Australia and other parts of the world. The third project it will be facilitated through Room to Read, which is literacy programs and life skills specifically for girls in the developing world. And so organizers, when running an event on humanities, will be able to choose which of those projects they'd like us to donate 100% of our profits towards. And then it's really neat as the organizer sells tickets on their dashboard, they can see exactly how much has been transferred over, directed over to their project of choice. So it's really transparent. Yeah, that must be a really uh, huge value add, that element of... X number of tickets has equaled this impact, a really simple and really valuable output to having an event beyond, you know, the event itself. And, you know, we speak to a lot of social enterprises and impact investors on this podcast. The big issue is impact measurement and, you know, the measurement and evaluation that, that charities mm -hmm. and projects do. Do you have any insights? Have you sort of been helping charities to find other methods and other frameworks? Not so much in that way. We've got a very good relationship with the Atlassian Foundation who are remarkable in, in some of the stuff that they do, as well as now, most recently, the google.org as well. We've just mainly been leaning on their insights and learnings on kind of the kind of frameworks and, and things to focus on. The cool thing there to add is as well is we re recognized as well that a lot of charities and not-for-profits themselves run a lot of events. If a charity is using Humanitics to do the ticketing for their event, we don't ask that charity to select one of our education projects to support with their, with their event from our booking fees. That would be silly. So instead, we just simply operate at cost so that we're the most cost-effective solution for all charities and not-for-profits in the market. It's kind of a, a two-pronged thing where it's a cost saver for charities and not-for-profits running events through Humanitics. And then for everyone else at festivals and gala dinners and conferences and awards nights and uh, etc. That's where we have uh, where we direct 100% of our profits to to our education projects. Yeah, the the link with Atlassian is an interesting one, and it and makes us realise that the way you engage with charities is a lot like a foundation would. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Atlassian, who I believe are a donors for you early on, and helped you take that next step, and then some of the things you learnt from Atlassian and the way they operate and the way they see the world. We've got an incredible relationship with, with Atlassian. Atlassian were our first 
major, major donors. Initially, we had individual private philanthropists coming in to, to seed fund, uh, to provide seed funding for, the, for Humanitics. But um, Atlassian were the first, I guess, foundation that came in to provide us with a tangible uh, amount of money that over, over many years would be able to, to see us through to sustainability. That's phenomenal. And the work we did there with Atlassian was, was really, really interesting. And they have an incredibly open-minded approach, an innovative approach to, I guess, how they, how they generate the most impact through their foundation. Atlassian's goal as a foundation is phenomenal. They want to educate 10 million of the most disadvantaged students over the next 10 years. And much of the work that we did, we're doing at the time as well, it's all around education and our impact that we want to make in education. The problem was that we couldn't really do an impact investment because there's no equity to provide Atlassian with to give them a return. And we didn't really want to do a debt deal either. So what we did is recognize that if Atlassian gave us money, they could in return have the rights to allocate a percentage of our donation stream. And so that's where Atlassian highlighted the fact that Room to Read with literacy programs and life skills are a phenomenal charity that they support significantly and opened our eyes to the amazing work that Room to Read do. So what the deal was is that in return for funding from Atlassian, Atlassian would be able to own the rights to a percentage of our profit pool, ensuring that Room to Read receive a percentage of our redistribution of profits, which mimics equity in a very clever way. So Atlassian don't own equity, but the whole structure is mimicking equity, if if that makes sense. And that way, as we grow, they stand to leverage this asset in that they've funded Humanitics and that we are redistributing a a serious portion of our funding towards the literacy programs and life skills for girls done by Room to Read. And so that gets passed straight to that charity and that work. And Atlassian are very happy because that is exactly the kind of work they want to be doing. So they can generate leverage on the money that they're giving to us to the projects that they want to be funding anyway. Yeah, look, very interesting model. They're kind of outsourcing, I guess, some of that work to you guys and and you guys are absorbing, I guess, some of their technology skill set and the way they vet who they're giving their money to and, of course, the impact measurement elements as well. Yeah, we work closely with their security staff as well. They do security audits and review of our site. I mean, their technolo- technology insight and skill set is just phenomenal and, and they've been a huge help there. And those guys are obviously very savvy at, you know, Atlassian sort of as the company rather than the foundation, uh, are very savvy at understanding trends, um, you know, acquisitions and, and moving forward and growing the company. This framework that you've come up with, you know, a simple concept, find a process-oriented business, build the systems and then overtake the competition by bundling in impact. Um, you know, in a way that everyone wins. Are there some other businesses that you think could be ripe for uh, a bit of social impact disruption? I think, honestly, every kind of industry and business is somewhat ripe for for disruption in that way. It's very difficult because it's kind of just like any startup, you're likely to fail. And, and you know, it's very, very difficult to get something going. But I, I genuinely feel that that as we continue, uh, businesses are, are more and more being expected to provide impact and to have a have a genuine purpose and to be solving a, a bigger problem outside of themselves. And so I, I find that that trend really interesting. And and, and so because of that, I, I think it's it's a pretty open playing field in many industries. 
I mean, some are more ripe than others, perhaps. But I mean, when we first started the idea with ticketing, everyone thought that it was a silly idea, as did we. You know, most ideas are silly and that it probably won't work for a million reasons. But then, you know, somehow you just try and make it work. Yeah. Has there been any reaction from your competitors? Have they sort of started to offer, you know, opportunities for people setting up events to, you know, allocate to charities and those sorts of things? Have you seen anything pop up that's a little bit defensive? Uh, No, not so much. That doesn't make your shareholders very happy Mm. (laughs) when you start giving giving away too many profits. So it's an interesting one. Okay, we've got a bit more of a one-way, good stuff. And, and digging into the details a bit and looking at, you know, the way the cash flows and that sort of thing, because you are a charity and then people often question, you know, how much of the donation actually goes to the organisation and that sort of thing. You know, if there was a $100 ticket, if my calculations are right, your service fee will be about $5. What happens to my yeah. five bucks? Does it all go out the door to the charity? So we first cover our costs and our costs are a range of things. It's credit card fees, the Visa, Amex, MasterCard fees, it's the platform costs, uh, there's some taxes in there and the like. And so what we do from day one is we assume a 30% pre-tax profit margin. And so 30% of that $5 is our profit margin. And that straight away gets donated to the charity project of choice. And we found that that was a really, really transparent model because rather than us adding up our books at the end of the year and then fudging some profit number that anyone can fudge, rather assume a very bold profit margin, which we thought in this industry, 30% profit margin is a pretty bold ambition. And then just assume we do that from day one and donate that straight away. And so that's how we've operated it. And organizers love it because it's, it's incredibly transparent. It's sort of you've you've set a high bar for yourselves and you have to hit that. You have to keep your expenses low and work to it because you should have made that promise. Yeah, that's right. Often you judge charities as to the, you know, the percentage of the dollar that flows through. So for us, it's an interesting one because that's in a framework where you're asking people for donations to then pass on to the end user. Where for us, we're not asking anyone for donations. I mean, Atlassian and our private philanthropists fund us as, for this whole, this whole project, but we're not actually asking the public for donations. We simply go ahead and mine the billions of dollars in booking fees in the industry. And the entity covers its costs, which is why philanthropists are excited by it because it's sustainable. And then just, just simply redistributing all of the profits of the industry as much as we can get our hands on towards the things that we all care about. And so it's been an interesting one to consider how, how one would view that, which is obviously very different to a, a standard charity where you know, you're asking the public for a donation and you want to see how much is diluted through operational costs. I think everybody talks about innovation and assuming that it's in the technology when you can have innovation in that kind of business thinking and in that structure. And that's just as important as you say, you're mining a resource that's resented and then, and then just shifting it and reallocating it. There's no real losers there. So yeah, a really good way for people to think about innovation and really important. And of course, whenever I mention the name Humanitics to people in the run-up to this interview, it was always, oh, I know those guys. They're the ones I voted for in the Google Impact Challenge. And of course, <laughs> you guys won. So I think you know, it's, a good, it's a good flow there where it got your name out there and you also got the support. Can you tell us about that event, about the pitching you won and, and yeah, 
that whole process? Yeah, sure. So Google's Impact Challenge came to Australia again in 2018. That is a challenge for tech for social impact ideas. And it was really exciting when after you know putting in our application and going through some interviews, we were named as a top 10 finalist. As a top 10 finalist, we were then invited to pitch and present in front of the judging panel at the final event for the Google Impact Challenge so that they could decide the winners of the whole challenge. And so that was incredibly nerve-wracking. It was a 90-second pitch uh, with three minutes of question time. So we just worked tirelessly to get our communications pretty down pat and succinct into 90 seconds, which is almost impossible. Went on the day and pitched and grilled by the judges and they loved it and they they want to support us and they want to see us succeed and they see the massive opportunity that's standing in front of us to redistribute these billions of dollars in fees. That was just such a phenomenal, such a phenomenal win. There was a fourth winner that was awarded based on a popular vote on the night. And so that was the voting challenge where all the top 10 finalists in the two weeks leading up to that event had to try to wrestle up as many votes as possible. And then that popular vote winner was awarded on the, on the day as well. You guys won that and you won a million dollars. Is that right? Does that go straight into the kitty? Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's to fund a bunch of projects. So that's a, to, to fund our growth and expansion, obviously for us to, to be able to grow and, and, and redistribute more and more fees. But secondly, there's a really interesting feature that's come up in our world, a gap in the ticketing industry, which is that people with disabilities are in large part giving up on attending live events altogether because typically it's just a disaster. You know, if somebody has a vision impairment or is physically disabled or otherwise, organizers are typically well-meaning, but don't have the tools and don't have the insight as to what they need to be doing to make their events accessible. And we found this out in our journey. And what we did is put together a tool that ended up winning a, a hackathon based at PwC for solutions for people with disabilities. And so we put together an accessibility tool inside our dashboard and our platform for organizers. And what it does is it educates organizers on accessibility, as well as providing them with a tool to communicate how accessibility will be taken care of on the day. And we kind of broke down the journey of an attendee who might have a disability, of where throughout their journey do they need to be communicated specific information and what overall will give them confidence to attend an event so that they can be confident that you know, their requirements are taken care of. And at the same time, educating organizers on what those requirements are and, and what they should be thinking about what's most important. And so we're going to be vastly be improving that tool that we piloted that was really successful thanks to the Google money as well. So much innovation. You guys are kicking goals everywhere, just finding every little angle <laughs> and finding a different way to do it. That's really great. Look, I have no doubt that you guys are going to are gonna keep pushing through and, and that's the difference we'll see. Where to next? Do you have some more ideas? I mean, you're, you're obviously building something and that's going to keep going. Do you have any five-year goals, any sort of big moonshots that you're going for? Look, we are launching in New Zealand at the end of this month officially, which is really exciting. And so that will be our first multi-region play, which is really exciting. At the end of the day, you know, in five years, we, we want to be seen as a leading piece of technology in the events ticketing space that is well known across organizers and households as just the no-brainer choice to use when running an event and needing a ticketing solution because 
we've built this phenomenal asset for society that can redistribute billions of dollars in resented profits into education projects that make a massive difference in the world. Long term, we want to really step up our game in that regard to be recognized and to be appreciated or just more more understood that, you know, this is the new way that we can do ticketing as a global community and that this is a far more resourceful and impactful way to, to run ticketing for your event. Ultimately, that's that's where we want to go. So often on this podcast, we talk about quite abstract financial concepts and I ask my guests if they can give us an insight of how the everyday person sitting in their desk can make a difference. But with you guys, it really is simple and that's really what you've built it on. It's this very simple way where people are already running events, they're already going to need a ticketing supplier and you guys have got this system where you simply take one pool of funds and and allocate it to a charity of their choice. So great concept and yeah, people are going to be engaging with that a lot more, I'm sure. You know, heard it come up over and over in these conversations. So good stuff. And I have no doubt that the growth will continue. But before I let you go, I need to uh, ask for a book recommendation. It can be related to charity or business or anything, maybe something you read on the beach this summer. I'd have to say, maybe just because it was one of the most recent books I read, so it left an impression on me. One of the latest Yuval Harari books called Homo Deus was particularly interesting and compelling to read. I'd really recommend anyone that's that's interested in where as a as a species and, and as a society we might we might be heading and why we might head in in a particular way and and the kind of things that, that you know we should be aware of in order to craft a better world for ourselves. And the book is very kind of cleverly looks backwards to look forwards with a lot of research. I just thought it was a very interesting read that can be applied in so many different ways and depending on on what you do and what kind of job or or what kind of company you run. No, that's great. It's definitely on my list, but I have to to get through Sapiens first. Yeah, yeah. I recommend reading Sapiens before Amadeus. Yeah, that's a good good point. That's it. And yeah, I think they they tend to flow through and he's very good at having that sort of chronological and and psychological flow and yeah, getting us to think a lot more deeply. Good stuff. All right. Well, look, thank you for that, Adam. Um, I hope we can stay in touch. And uh, yeah, really appreciate the insights. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to be on the podcast. I wonder if you have any really quick insights on how to do a good pitch. You said you had a 90-second pitch that was really difficult and whether you're a startup founder or you're a charity trying to talk to investors, being able to do an elevator pitch and, and shorten down your message and your product is really important. I think one of the best things we did was starting with the problem and showing people a problem and showing people the world without a solution in a way that's that's very tangible and real. And I think if your idea lends itself to being able to start like that, you can very quickly get people in the right mindset as to what is the value that you're bringing here because they can start to empathize with you know the gap that you're you're essentially addressing and then after that begin to to weave in how you address that gap and then ideally you've you've got a bit of traction because you've piloted the idea and got some feedback from the market and then slowly bringing in that kind of I guess, confirmation that your idea and your approach to solving this problem is, is likely a winner and what you've learned there. And then that suggests that, you know, you've really thought about what the problem is, how you're addressing it and the feedback that you've got from the market. That suggests that this approach could be the right one. 
that's quite a very quick way to to just honestly demonstrate that you've you've really thought about it well and, and to get people in the right frame of mind to appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, you sort of go straight for the heart with a problem with a why and then have yeah, people on the edge of their seat with uh, hoping that you've got a good solution and then you deliver. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of benefit to just simply trying out your solution, even if it's just a pilot or even if it's something. Because I, I think pitches that are only a concept that potentially might work, it can succeed, obviously, and, and great ideas and great pitches have come from, from a pure idea. Everything comes from an, an idea. But if you can weave in some real experience, as in, you know, you've bounced this off a potential client or you've bounced this off the market or you've tested it this way and this is what you've honestly learned and this is what you also honestly don't know, that gives you a big leg up. 